All right, let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Father, we are thankful for Christ. We're thankful for the fact that you sent your only son to die on the cross for our sins. We're thankful that this season we can, we can celebrate the fact that God came as a man, came born of a virgin, and he came to rescue sinners. He came to rescue and call sons and daughters to himself. And so, Lord, I ask that you would work today through your word, that you would plant a seed in each heart here, starting with my own, that we would see the glory of your Son, that we would see the glory that you came to give to your people. And so, Lord, we ask this. We ask for your presence, even now. We ask for illumination, and we ask that you would show yourself faithful this morning in the midst of your people. Through Jesus Christ, amen. We're in Luke 2, and as we we go through, I'm going to open up reading Luke 2, verses 22 through 40. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple when the parents had brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. He took him up into his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation for the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when, they were, when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him, to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now keep your your hand there, because as we go through, we're going to refer back to and about this passage that I just read.
Today's message is actually on hope. Maybe you saw the slide when you came in uh, this morning. Uh, It's called A Season for Hope. I want to start off just asking, what is hope? Why is hope important? Hope is a belief in a positive outcome, says the American Heritage Dictionary. There are many different ways to look at hope. There's politicians that market themselves as the reason to have hope. There are people who have this positive thinking idea. There's even people who believe falsely, and they have a false hope. There's all these different kinds of hope. The reality is that none of these really get at the heart of what hope in the gospel is, what hope in Christ is. It's important to think through what the original hearers would have heard when they heard the story of Christ coming as a man, coming from heaven. It had been close to 400 years since the last book of the Bible in the Old Testament had been written. And so there was a long, long wait between that book and the time when Christ shows up on the scene. Many people call this the silent years, the silent 400 years, the intertestamental period. And what it starts off with is is the people of Israel are actually still under exile. They're still under judgment. And uh, and so the Persians, you guys remember in the Old Testament, there's the Babylonians and the Persians. The Persians were the last group that we end the Old Testament with. Uh, They're still ruling over Israel. They're still the fact that the kings are ruling the, the Persian king is ruling there. And it's not till 331 B.C. So the last book of the Bible, Malachi, was written probably around 460 B.C. And when we talk about B.C., you have to understand it goes backwards. We, we go 1 to, right now in 2010, for A.D. And B.C. is 460. So it wasn't until 331. Uh, so it was close to 100 years that Alexander the Great rides through Israel. And what ends up happening is uh, the priests see Alexander the Great as a fulfillment of the Daniel prophecy. And so they come out, they read Daniel, and there isn't anyone that's killed. Alexander just takes over Israel from the Persians. So in 331, he takes over Israel from the Persians, and it's not till, um, till around 164 that an old priest, Matthias, gets fed up with the, the rule of the, uh, the Greek rule. And at the time, there's actually the Syrians are over them because there's four generals, just briefly, four generals. This, this has been a history lesson, but I just want you guys to get the context and the stage as Christ comes, comes uh, onto the stage to understand what God's people have gone through. And so uh, the, the general that is a Syrian general is ruling over, uh, over Israel and the priest Matthias gets fed up because not only have they taken idols and put them into the temple, they've sacrificed pigs on the altar in the temple. They've done so many things that were to desecrate God's temple. Matthias finally gets fed up. He takes a sword and leads a revolt. And he's probably in his 80s at the time. He leads a revolt against Antiochus uh, IV. And amazingly, they win. They win against the against Syrian army, 
and with just a small army. And so be, then begins the Maccabean period, because that was Matthias' last name, Mac, the Maccabees, uh, and his five sons become the rulers for about 100 years. Uh, unfortunately, during that time, it goes from bad to worse as corruption partakes, uh, takes over the people of God. So after Matthias dies, his, one of his sons takes over, and it gets worse as there's a, a ruling priestly class that basically suppresses and, and distorts justice in Israel. And so it's not till 63 B.C. that you see, uh, you see Pompey coming. Pompey is a Roman general, and there's people... In Rome, that uh, in, in Israel, they asked for Rome to actually come and restore order. It had gotten so bad that they needed someone from the outside to come in, and so they invited Rome to come in. Rome came in. They set up uh, basically a Roman outpost in, in Israel. And uh, about 30 years later, Israel tries to revolt against Rome. They fail, and so there's really no hope of Israel becoming its own state again at this point. And so, they, in fact, they fail, and a um, Herod set up as their king. So it's not even an Israeli, a Jewish person that's reigning over Israel, but it's actually um, a descendant of Esau. And so Herod set up as the king, but there's a sense of despair. The Roman emperor is levying large taxes against the people. Herod's levying large taxes against the people. They're, the people of Israel don't know where to turn. And that's the stage that Christ comes in on. And so, God shows himself to be faithful. And the first point I have today is we hope in Christ when we trust his word. God had promised there was a Messiah coming. God had promised over and over again, from Genesis through Malachi, there was a Messiah coming. So, we see Mary and Joseph come into the temple. They have that, you guys all know the the history of the the shepherds coming in, rejoicing the night that Jesus is born. So this is 40 days after that. They're coming to the temple. It's about six miles away, which probably took about a day's journey to get there. Actually, with the little one, probably two days' journey to get there. Everything seems to double as you have little ones. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so this was for a purifying purifying, um, sacrifice and we know that Mary and Joseph did not have a lot of money because they had they offered instead of offering a lamb they offered two small birds and so they they seemed to be still in, in Bethlehem at the time and they come up to Jerusalem to offer to offer sacrifices for Mary and Jesus for the purification according to the law. And they come knowing that this is all they have, is is just these two birds. And they come into the temple with expectation that God is going to provide, that God is provided the Messiah, and God is, is wanting for them to come and worship at the temple. Worship at the temple was crucial to God's people because that was where they could be a corporate body, where they could draw near to God. 
through the presence of God. And I'm not sure Mary and Joseph knew that the little baby that they were carrying was God in the flesh at that point. They just knew he was the Messiah. They knew he was going to redeem and rescue God's people. I'm not sure they knew what that meant. But they drew near in confidence. They drew near to the temple. And they followed God's word. God called for them in Leviticus to consecrate the firstborn. Everyone who who had a firstborn son was to consecrate them to God. Listen to what God says about uh, teaching your children. In Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk to them when you sit down in the house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand, and they shall be frontless between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house in the gates. See, our responsibility as children doesn't stop when they get old enough to go out and play with their friends. Our responsibility with our children is to call them back to God, to call them to look at the cross, to realize that there's only one Savior, not to have any hope in anything else besides God alone. Our responsibility to our children is to hope in God and to model that before them. It's not to hope in a brighter tomorrow because society says it. It's because of his word that we hope, knowing that God is a God of promise. And what he promises, he fulfills. You hear the voice of God in the word. I think that's why this is such a crucial point. You hear the voice of God in the word. When you listen in the morning, you can recognize it during the day and throughout the day. And that's what it means to have as frontlets before your eyes and on your doorpost as you come and go. The word of God has saturated your heart. And, and as Pastor Paul talked about, like a shepherd, you hear his voice. You recognize it because you've heard it in the morning And you hear it throughout the day as you hear and listen and actively participate in talking to your Savior and trusting in God's Word. We are children that are dependent upon God. I think of the the fact that we need God as parents. We need God as children. We need God in every aspect And one way to cultivate that dependency on God is to look to his word, to trust in his word, to realize that in God's word there is power. Listen to uh, this story that's told about D.L. Moody by R.A. Torrey, his pastor and close friend. Uh, This is the secrets of why D.L. Moody was, was... so effective. And, um, and Tory published this after D.L. Moody had died. And he was, uh, if you guys don't know who D.L. Moody was, he was an evangelist. He actually uh, grew up in Massachusetts and lived in Chicago. 
And so uh, listen to this. Uh, he says, the third secret of Mr. Moody's power, or the third reason why God used D.L. Moody, was because he was a deep and practical student of the Word of God. Nowadays, it is often said that D.L. Moody was not a student. I wish to say that he was a student most emphatically. He was a student. He was not a student of psychology or anthropology. I'm not even sure he knew what that means. Or he didn't study biology. He was not a student of philosophy. He was not even a student of theology in the technical sense. But he was a student, a profound and practical student of the one book that is more worthy of study than any other book in the world put together. He was a student of the Bible. Every day of his life, he had reason, and I have reason for believing he rose up early in the morning every day of his life to study the Word of God. Way down um, to the close of his life, he continued to study the Word of God. Mr. Moody used to rise about 4 o'clock in the morning to study the Bible. He would say to me, if I am going to get any study, I have to get up before all the folks get up. And he would shut himself in a remote room in his house, alone with God and his Bible. I shall never forget the first night I spent in his home. He had invited me to uh, take the superintendent of the Bible Institute position, and I had already begun my work. And he was on way to some city in the east to preside over an international Christian workers' convention. And he wrote to me saying, just as soon as the convention's over, come up to Northfield. And he learned when I was likely to arrive and drove from South Ver- uh, Vernon to meet me. That night, we had all the teachers in Mount Hermon School and from the Northfield Seminary come together at the house to meet me and to talk over the problems of the two schools. We talked together far into the night, and then after the principals and the teachers and the schools had all gone home, Mr. Moody and I talked together about the problems a while longer. It was very late when I turned into bed, but very early the next morning, about 5 o'clock, I heard a gentle tap on my door. Then I heard Mr. Moody's voice whispering, Tori, are you up? I happen to be. I do not always get up that early, but early hour, but I happened to be that particular morning. He said, I want to go, you to go with me somewhere. And I went down with him and found that he had already been up an hour or two in the room studying the Word of God. Oh, you may talk about power, but if you neglect the one book that God has given you as the one instrument which he imparts and exercises his power, you will not have it. You may read many books, you may go to many conventions, and you may have all-night prayer meetings to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit, but unless you keep in constant and close association with the one book, the Bible, you will not have power. If you have ever had power, you will, re- you will maintain it. You will not maintain it except by the daily, earnest, intense study of the book, the Word of God. And then he closes, 99%, 99 Christians in every hundred are merely playing a Bible study. And therefore, 99 Christians in every hundred are mere weaklings when they might be giants, both in their Christian life and in their service. I think that's sobering when we think about it. The reality is, everything we need for life and godliness is in this book. Everything we need.
Second point. We hope in Christ when we believe he is our salvation. We hope in Christ first when, uh, when we trust his word, and now it's when we believe he is our salvation. It's the second point. So Simeon enters the story at this point, and we're told that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. I can almost imagine, I think I have a picture of the, the temple, I can almost imagine Mary and Joseph coming up into Jerusalem, coming up this hill, going up into the temple, and you have to go up several flights of stairs. If you look, there's a little outline around, around the temple. That outline is the barrier between Gentiles that are not God-fearers and Gentiles that are. And so you weren't allowed past that barrier unless you proclaimed that you believed in God as the only God and that you, you could be a Gentile in that courtyard. And I can imagine them coming up, and as it talks about in the passage, coming up and suddenly Simeon comes running down the steps to meet Mary and Joseph. Can you see that? Simeon probably was standing there waiting, and the Spirit says, that's, that's the parents, that's the one that they're carrying. And he comes running and probably you know, startled them, grabbed Jesus up into his arms, and proclaimed the prophecy that he was a light to the Gentiles. I wonder if he said that in the Gentiles' court. He said, this is a light to the Gentiles. This is salvation for all peoples. And so... So we see that, and then after that, they carry Jesus in to the, where the outer, the inner court, the first inner court is the women's court, and so they carry him in, and suddenly Anna comes up and says, this is the one, this is the Messiah. Can you imagine the joy in these two prophet and prophetesses' hearts as they held the one that was hope incarnate? the one that was hope for all mankind. And they held him, and it doesn't just say they held him, they went and told others about him. That's the reality that when you encounter Christ, we believe he is our salvation, and we can't hold that in. When we truly, truly encounter Christ, we believe that he is the hope for all people. So Simeon enters, and it says something interesting about Simeon, um, it says that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And that word consolation is hard to translate into English. It basically means waiting for help. They were, he was waiting for the help that would redeem Israel. He was waiting for the help that would restore Israel's hope. It's not wishful thinking. If you think, I just want you to put out of your mind, any idea that hope is wishful thinking. True hope is grounded in what God said and what God is going to do and what God has done. That is the center of our hope. I don't want to be ambiguous about what hope is and what it's not. I want you to know that hope is Christ and he is the center of our salvation. It is not some experience that you have. It's not walking the aisle at some point. It's not trusting that somehow God's going to save us. It's hoping only in Christ as a dying man holds to 
a drowning man holds to a raft, knowing there's no other boats out there. And you hold tight. If you were out in the middle of a sea holding to a raft, would you let go? I don't think so. I think you would hold on as tight as you could. Listen to what Isaiah writes. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice because of you and with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And then he goes on later. In, uh, this is in verse, uh, chapter 9 of Isaiah. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called. Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Listen to that. In the, of the increase of his government and of peace, of shalom, there will be no end. And in the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Simeon knew that the only hope of Israel was for God to work on their behalf. He knew that God had to come to their aid. Notice, it uses righteous and devout as as adjectives to explain who Simeon is. Righteous and devout. And the Spirit was upon him. This is God's salvation for us. How are you believing God's salvation? How are you trusting in Christ today? He is our only hope. Does your vision include Christ in all of life? Or does it just include Christ maybe in salvation when you first turn to Christ? Does the gospel mean that you live out the goodness of God before the face of God by Christ's power day by day. How is that done? Well, that brings us to the third point. We hope in Christ when we seek his active presence, the active presence of his Holy Spirit. Although Simeon lived in a time where Scripture had been, not been written for over hundreds of years, He was listening to God's voice. He heard God's active presence. If you think about it, uh, it says in Joel, and this is speaking of of Pentecost, but it says in Joel that there will come a time that I will pour my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your old men will dream dreams. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Zechariah also writes, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on him whom they pierce, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps for a firstborn. 
God promised to pour out his spirit on all people, on all of his children. Now, Simeon lived in a time when the spirit of God was limited to those who God chose to pour out his spirit on. Not that that's changed at all. God still chooses who he will and won't pour his spirit on. But Simeon lived in a time where that was very few and far between. And yet God chose to pour out his spirit on him. We live in a time that's extraordinary. Because God's spirit is poured out on all those who have faith in God, who have faith in Christ. So if you are partakers in Christ, if your hope is in Christ, the Spirit of God indwells you. God has shared His Spirit with all people. That is an amazing, amazing, amazing thing. I don't know how to even describe the fact that without God's Spirit, we could not live out of the goodness of the Gospel. Without God's Spirit, we could not look to the Word and understand what the Word means. Yes, we could read the the words of it, but we could never understand the completeness of the Word of God. Without God's Spirit, we would never see Christ. It's kind of like the... When we think of hope and the realities of who Christ is... It's kind of like the idea that Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis puts it out in the Chronicles of Narnia in the Lion, the Wish, and the Wardrobe where the children are, and I hope many of you have read that, but the children are there waiting, um, waiting to find out who is Aslan and what he has done. And all they know is about the White Witch at this point. And so they hear about all the things the White Witch has done and how it's always winter, never Christmas. There's no hope. For hundreds of years in Narnia in this tale, always winter, never Christmas. Well, then it talks about when, when Father Christmas comes. And listen to this portion. He was a huge man in bright red robe and had bright red holly berries with a hood of fur that inside it and great white bush that fell like a foamy waterfall over his chest. Now that the children actually stood looking at him, he was so big and so glad and so real that they all became quite still. They, were, they felt glad, but they were very solemn. I've come at last, he said. She has kept me out for a long time, but I have come at last. Aslan is on the move. The witch's magic is weakening. And Lucy felt that deep shiver of gladness that you only get from being solemn and still. The world... And its pleasures are passing away. But the reality of Christ is that He has come. That He is on the move. That He sits enthroned in heaven. And the reality is that we live looking to the first advent, realizing that there's a second advent. That by the Holy Spirit's directing, by the Holy Spirit's enlightening, we know that Christ is coming back. And that He is on the move. That is something that we can hope in. That is something we can know. We can take it to the bank, so to speak. We know that Christ is coming back. And so we live in a a similar time to Simeon in the fact that he sees Christ 
And he realizes all the hope that he's been hoping hoping for is right there. We understand that there were probably Pharisees, there were probably Sadducees standing in the temple when Simeon and Anna see Christ. The Pharisees, they sought to bring about revival through acts of the law, through following God's, the, the written word of God. The Sadducees sought it through political means. But Simeon saw the greatness of God in their midst. Don't miss that today. Don't leave here without seeing the greatness of God in our midst being Christ himself. That is who the Holy Spirit wants to show you today. That is who the Holy Spirit wants to lift up today. And so Simeon saw himself not as a slave under Roman rule, but in verse 29 he says, you're letting your servant, God's servant, depart in peace. Christ was the Prince of Peace. He was the Shalom of the world. And with Christ came about lasting peace. Maybe not through political means, but one day there will be ultimate peace because of Christ. My eyes have seen your salvation. Can you imagine being there in the midst of the the temple where Simeon is looking at Christ? He's waited all of his life. In fact, the Holy Spirit said he would not see death until he saw the Christ. That must have been an exciting promise to realize that Christ was going to come about in your lifetime. Have you thought about the fact that Christ could come back at any minute? Have you thought about the fact that he could come back even right now? And the reality is that he can. There's nothing holding God back. He is slow in coming because he wants to be merciful to many. That's the reality. That God's mercy extends to us who were once rebels and to our friends and neighbors that still are. How have they seen the salvation of God in your life? In Isaiah it writes, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes the peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. The good news is that God has set up the king, and that is himself. There's no partial reign. Christ is fully reigning now, and one day he will reign in our reality as well. So, under what reign are you submitting? Are you looking to something else for your hope? Or is your hope found in the Word of God? Is the hope found in the salvation that only Christ can bring? Is your hope found being filled by the Spirit? God's steadfast love endures. God's hope 
endures throughout all generations. Listen to what C.H. Spurgeon says. I'm glad of any signs of life, even if they should be feverish and transient, and I am slow to judge any well-intentioned movement. But I am very fearful that many so-called revivals in the long run wrought more harm than good, a species of religious gambling that has fascinated many men and given them a distaste for sober business of true godliness. But if I would nail down counterfeits upon the counter, I do not therefore undervalue true gold. Far from it. It is to be desired beyond measure that the Lord would send a real and lasting revival of spiritual life. We need the work of the Holy Spirit for a supernatural kind. Putting power into the preaching of the word, inspiring all believers with heavenly energy, and solemnly affecting the hearts of the careless so that they turn to God and live, we would not be drunk with wine of carnal excitement, but we would be filled with the Spirit. We would behold the fire descending from heaven in answer to the effectual, fervent prayers of righteous men and women. Can we not entreat the Lord our God to make bare his holy hand in the eyes of the people? In this day of declension and vanity, it is upon the truly godly and spiritual that the future of religion depends. In the hand of God, oh, for more truly holy men, quickened and filled with the Holy Spirit, consecrated to the Lord and sanctified by his truth, brethren, we must each live in the, if the church is to be alive. Brethren, we must each live if the church is to be alive. We must live unto God if we expect to see the pleasure of God prospering in our hands. Sanctified men are the salt of society and saviors of the race. We are called to be light because our Savior is light. We are called to draw sinners near because our Savior drew sinners near. And so when we come to work, when we go about our day, how has the gospel transformed your life? How has Christ transformed your life? Is there hope that people ask about? Is there differences that people notice. I want to close with just a few questions here. So how are you trusting in God's word? What are your actions, your devotions, your parenting, your thinking? How has God's word changed those How have you put yourself in the way of salvation? Are you proclaiming? Are you looking forward to that day? Are you realizing daily need for Christ? And thirdly, how are you being filled with the Spirit? How is your faith being filled by the Holy Spirit? How are you seeing God's work in your life? So with that in thought, I'm going to close in prayer and have the worship team come up. Lord, we are grateful 
that you are our hope. We are grateful that we can trust in you, knowing that you have provided the way of salvation. You have provided your word. You have provided your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we ask, we ask that this Christmas season, we would show forth the light that Christ has done for us and in us. That we would share the good news. And that we would realize there are many, many that don't know Christ that are on their way to eternal destruction. So Lord, have your way with us. May we be your servants. May we truly show the light of Christ to those around us. Jesus Christ. Thank you.